Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. Calling for resignation, State Senator Paul Formica voices his concerns over the escalating costs of the New London State Pier project and the Connecticut Port Authority. And the Connecticut Sun women's basketball team has a new president. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. We have a change of story for this week's Connecticut East This Week. Our chat with Scott Garbini, a college consultant and life skills coach, will be in next week's episode. The Connecticut Port Authority holds regular monthly public meetings with its board members and because of COVID, they have been virtual for the past year. They are attended by the public as well as local business leaders, elected officials and the media. Their April meeting was somewhat different as there were calls for board members to resign by a local state senator, Paul Formica, who unleashed on the CPA his unhappiness about their continued handling of the new London State Pier project. To get more analysis on this story, I'm joined by Brendan Crowley, a reporter for the Connecticut Examiner, who was on the call and also interviewed Formica and other parties. Brendan, ever so many thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Brian. So the Connecticut Port Authority has uh, regular meetings of its finance committee and its board members. And obviously before COVID, they were in person. But at the moment, they're being uh, conducted like so many meetings remotely and, you know, using virtual services. Lots of people sit on these. The media in particular obviously pay attention to public meetings. And you were on this one for April. This one was sparkier than usual. Tell us a little bit about it. It was, yeah. Uh, so recently, the the cost estimates for the the redevelopment of the the state pier to allow you know for for offshore wind development. Originally, it was you know supposed to be a ninety three million dollar project that got bumped up last year to one hundred fifty seven million. Uh, we get to the bond state bond commission a couple weeks ago, and uh, it's suddenly two hundred thirty five million, and that raised a, a lot of eyebrows. So at the uh, the Port Authority meeting following that, Senator Paul Formica, who's been a you know pretty strong supporter of this project and a supporter of offshore wind, he you know questioned pretty forcefully you know just why the cost estimate increased eighty million dollars, and yeah, from there it. it it got pretty heated. So it got heated, I mean, to the point that, as you say, Senator Formica, who has been a big supporter all along of this, actually called for the resignations of the board members as well, which seems a very unusual step by him. Yeah, yeah. He was, uh, I, I talked to him after the meeting. He said uh, that really he's, you know, just frustrated that the the price of this keeps going up. And, you know, his his call for people to resign was really if, you know, if they can't get the the cost right and get the cost estimate right and you know have one actual dollar figure that we're going to be going forward with in this project you know he feels that you know that's not really a, a responsible use of you know the taxpayers money and yeah he, he just thinks they they need to you know be more careful about this going forward i'm just going to quote something actually it was in your article a quote by him this is how strongly he felt 
a quote by Senator Formica, I am offended as a legislator and I'm offended for all the taxpayers. Quite frankly, I think you should all resign your positions if you can't get this right. We need to get somebody in here who can salvage the project and come up with a number that is finite, that can be worked on so that we can build this thing. That's just part of a quote. As I said, very forceful language from him, which then so like prompted the Deputy Secretary of the Office of Policy and Management, Costa Diamantis, who is regularly on these meetings as well. He got rather defensive, didn't he, about all of this? And I think he was trying to explain the figures. Yeah, so Costa, I think, felt like the senator's comments were attacking OPM and the work that they've done on this this project. And, you know, I talked to him after the meeting as well. And, you know, he was really trying to make it clear that they don't see this as a, an overrunning cost that the, you know, those earlier estimates, the $157 million estimate that they came out with last year, that was based on uh, kind of an incomplete project plan. They said it was only 30% complete at the time. And since then, OPM actually wasn't involved in the project from the beginning. So they've you know, gotten involved in the project. They brought on board a construction manager who's really the person who you know, oversees the construction. They know the details of what work needs to be done, what that work is actually going to cost. So having that person involved in the planning is really important to get an accurate you know, cost estimate. So since they have brought that construction manager on board is when they they realized you know they had it was going to cost more than 157 million i think a uh, a couple months ago this was the the first time kind of flags were raised was uh, governor lamont to the the day editorial board said that the cost could be over 200 million and then we come to find out it ends up being 235 and uh, costa was saying that's a, a result of the construction manager getting in there you know digging into the details and really actually getting to the the true costs, which he says is going to be 235 million. There's $10 million in there for contingency, uh, but depending on how, you know, they have to bid out all these different work packages. So whatever those bids come back as will ultimately determine the, the final price. It was also mentioned by Diamantis that the the original first estimate, which we all um, heard of $93 million when this project was first touted, he said was a figure which, you know, came from the administration of of the former Governor Dan Malloy. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Yeah, so there, between that $93 million uh, price and the $157 million, there were some pretty significant changes to you know, the actual scope of the project. Yeah, I'm not sure how much of it really has to do with the the different administrations or just OPM, you know, actually getting involved in the project because it was, you know, previously it was all Port Authority was managing it. I mean, you've also spoken to, to John Henshaw as well, haven't you? The executive, the new executive director of the Connecticut Port Authority. Get, give us a sense of, you know, the, the discussions you've had with him as well, because obviously he's very much in the spotlight here as well, being obviously the new person on the block, but also the executive director of this quasi-public agency, which seems to be really under constant criticism. Yeah, so he has come in pretty recently and obviously there, you know, there is a lot of scrutiny of the Port Authority. There's been, you know, troubles over the the past couple of years, different, you know, allegations of, you know, mismanagement of funds, you know, pretty recently the Attorney General announced that he was investigating the Port Authority for a 
a bonus that they they gave like a finder's fee that they gave in a, a contract looking for a, a port operator so yeah there's there's definitely a lot of scrutiny that he's under that the port authority is under he was not really involved because he came on so recently he wasn't involved in those earlier cost estimates so his understanding of you know what went on there um, just why those cost estimates increased uh, what he told me was pretty much uh, exactly what uh, Diamantis told me and the thing that obviously we do know about uh, John Henshaw is that he held a very similar position in Maine. In fact, he was very successful in his previous position, which is one of the reasons why, one, he decided to take this job. But clearly, the Connecticut Port Authority saw him as a good replacement executive director. I suppose the point I want to put to you, Brendan, is, you know, this story just keeps on giving. I mean, the Connecticut Port Authority, every step, something seems to, to be unearthed. I mean, do you get a sense that John Henshaw gets that as well and that, you know, really this this ship needs to be righted? Yeah, I think he definitely does. Uh, I think the, you know, the people at the Port Authority understand that they're, you know, under this much scrutiny. I think that was part of what uh, Diamantis told me as well was the reason that they came out with these early estimates. You know, usually you wouldn't come out when you're only 30% done planning a project and say, this is what's going to cost when you you know, don't know, it could be 80 million more than that. Usually they wouldn't come out with those early estimates, but Diamantis said that they wanted to be as upfront as possible, um, as transparent as possible, because they know uh, what kind of scrutiny they're, they are under. And, you know, he kind of described it as a, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. If they didn't put out those earlier figures, he thinks they, you know, the public and the press would be, you know, demanding some kind of number and, you know, now that they they did put out those earlier numbers and they turned out to not be accurate, you know, they're they're feeling the heat from that as well. And did you get a sense from talking with uh, Diamantis that, um, you know, we've, we've seen these figures keep going up and up and up. Did you get a sense that hopefully this is it now? I mean, yeah, that's that's what he says, that this is the uh, final estimate. Obviously, things can change when it goes out to bid, but they have you know, the, the actual hard construction costs they have set at 204 million, they have 10 million for contingencies in there. So yeah, there he's, you know, adamant, this is the, the 100% complete design. This is the, the final figure num- figure that we're going forward with. But, you know, if you go to meetings from, from last year, when they're presenting the project with 157 million, you know, dollar cost estimate, it was seemed at that point, I think to everybody who was watching that that was the, the final cost estimate. Um, so that's really where the the impression that there's a, a cost overrun came from. So, yeah, I guess we'll we'll just have to see. A lot of people will definitely be watching it closely. Well, Brendan, it's All been right. great talking to you. And uh, this, as I say, this uh, particular story will continue to run because clearly we've not even seen the beginning of the project yet at State Pier, which, of course, uh, is this this whole bone of contention is over. And I know that the Connecticut Examiner will be continuing to follow this story. But in the meantime, thanks ever so much for your analysis and obviously for your reporting on this and uh, for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Brian. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, brought to you by UConn Health. Here for you then, here for you now. Hello, I'm Dr. Holinka, and today I'm talking about the mental health issue of substance use and addiction. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, over 20 million adults in the U.S. met criteria for a past year substance use disorder. However, only 7.5% of those individuals received treatment from an addiction treatment program. 
Furthermore, the CDC reported that as of June 2020, 13% of Americans reported starting or increasing substance use to cope with stress during the pandemic. While substance use is not an uncommon experience, shame and stigma surrounding addiction seem to be universal experiences. Unfortunately, shame and stigma can be real barriers for people acknowledging their struggles and seeking treatment. So what is someone to do about this? First, it is essential to acknowledge when shame might be showing up for you, whether you notice the urge to keep your substance use a secret, negative self-talk, or uncomfortable physical sensations. Second, remind yourself that using substances is often an effort to self-soothe, avoid some negative experience, or cope with stress. We all have ways of trying to do this. Third, commit to taking at least one small step towards your goal of cutting back or quitting. You might research treatment options, talk to a trusted friend, try out a self-help meeting, or start to visualize yourself asking for help. Effective treatments exist and can be tailored to you personally. If you or someone you know is suffering from the signs or symptoms of a mental illness, then contact your doctor and speak to them about professional treatment options and how they can help you. Women's basketball in Connecticut is a big deal, especially if you play for the Mohegan Tribe-owned Connecticut Sun. And recently they made a major announcement introducing a new president for the club in Jennifer Rosotti a former UConn women's basketball star and the current assistant coach of the USA women's Olympic basketball team. Connecticut East this week attended the press conference that officially welcomed Rosati, and we joined the conference with Rosati saying how this new role is not so different from being a coach. Yeah, you know, it's funny. When when I first started coaching, um, I was still playing for the Houston Comets and then the Cleveland Rockers. So I can remember saying, like, One of the advantages that I have is I know what you feel like. You know, I've been in your shoes. And at that time, I was doing things concurrently. I feel similar about this new challenge for me is, you know, I'll be watching Kurt on the sideline and I'm going to know what he's feeling. Uh, I might not feel the same level of stress as he's feeling, but I'm going to know the angst of a bad call. (laughs) I'm going to know the angst of a missed free throw um, or when the team... uh, uh, defends in, you know, even if they went over something in shoot around on how to defend and they defend incorrectly in a game, I'm going to see the angst on his face. Um, so I think basketball wise, there'll be a, a good translation for me to understand what him and his staff are going through, but more importantly, what it is they need to continue to be successful. I, you know, leadership is leadership. Uh, I've been managing my whole life. Um, since I was 25 and took over at Hartford, I had to manage a staff and I had to manage a budget and I had to manage, um, navigate my, my way through, um, administration. So, um, I, I feel like even though I've never been in a position like this, I've been preparing for it my whole life and I'm ready, you know, and I know I have a lot to learn, but one of the things I've learned in my career is that you surround yourself with really good people, uh, who make you look good and that work tirelessly, um, to help you be successful. And I plan to do that here. How did you know this was the place to go, just that kind of process? Yeah, I, I mean, it was a process. That's a good word for it. You know, obviously, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. It was March 15th, and I was surprised to get let go at, at GW and really was not thinking at all about what was next. Um, I knew that I was a little bit burnt out, <laughs> that I needed a break. I needed to take a breath and then be able to consider what was put in front of me. And and this opportunity came up pretty quickly, or at least the idea of it. And it became more of a reality as the weeks went on. And and as I said earlier, I started to talk to more people in the organization. 
you know, I met with Dave Martinelli and Don Trella and then Kathy Reagan Pine and her sister Beth. And um, the same themes kept reoccurring in all of my conversations. And that was culture, that was family, and that was support. Um, and I knew based on where I was coming from over the last few years that I would not be able to step into another situation if I didn't have all three of those things. Uh, I'm fine about I'm fine being all business and getting the job done, but I want to have fun while I'm doing it. And I want to enjoy the people around me and make sure that we're, we're competing together to be the best that we can be and that we have a bunch of uh, people in our organization that are all in to, to, to the end goal. And I felt that theme being pretty consistently permeated through the entire process, that this was a place that was going to embrace me, welcome me home, value my skill set, work with me on the things I needed to be worked on with, but definitely recognize that I could have an impact on the organization, maybe in a way that others haven't so far. So I'm excited for the opportunity. I'm flattered. I'm um, humbled, to be honest with you, that I would even be considered. Um, and it makes me even more determined to make sure I do a great job. Jen, obviously the Olympics are this summer. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about your role with USA Basketball, what that's going to be, and yeah. how you plan to, to balance out everything you need sure. to do with this new job and that job? Yeah, so... Um, it's, it's not often that you get asked to be an Olympic assistant coach. There's only three of them. So this is a, certainly a dream of mine and not one that I was willing to give up. And that was, I made that clear from the beginning that coaching in the Olympics would, would be my final coaching tasks of uh, 2021. Um, but I think, again, the, the support that I've gotten from uh, Mohegan about wanting me to, to be here to lead the organization and understanding that between my family you know, balancing out my kids finishing school and having to move here and my USA basketball commitments throughout the summer, that I could be here and I could, I could do this job, but I wasn't necessarily going to be present every day of the summer uh, this year. But again, like I said earlier, it's about surrounding yourself with people that are, are going to be there every day, putting the work in. It's about having an overall commitment uh, and making sure that I do a great job of communicating my vision as I figure out what that looks like, that we're, again, the staff is in this together. You know, in this day and age of of a year of COVID, we've all learned how to work remotely and Zoom meetings and stay connected in different ways. And so certainly I'll have many opportunities to stay connected to the staff and to the team and just make sure that I'm giving what I can 100% of the time, but also fulfilling my dream of, of being an Olympic basketball coach. Obviously, you were one of the leaders in that UConn team, that first championship team. Is it kind of surreal to be back here in Connecticut and have the opportunity to lead the Connecticut Sun to their first title as well? It is. It is surreal. I'm definitely somebody who loves to be the first to do something, you know, um, whether it's winning the first national championship at UConn or taking Hartford to its first uh, NCAA tournament. I, I think that it's, there's something special about, you know, having, being able to have that edge. And, and Connecticut's a special place. Um, the, the, the people here embrace great women's basketball. They're, you know, with no other professional sports, it's, this is the place to be. Um, I didn't have an opportunity to play a whole lot at the Mohegan Sun Arena. I think I overlapped one year when I was in Cleveland and I played here once or twice. Um, but I've been in this building before and I know what it sounds like and what it feels like. And um, I'm excited for our players to be able to play in front of you know, some fans early in the season and hopefully a lot of fans late in the season. But yeah, that's the goal. I mean, you know, they've gotten almost all the way there. You know, I I can't take credit for the work that was done before I got here, but I'm certainly going to do the best that I can to help them finish the job. Could you speak a little bit about the importance of the 25th anniversary of WNBA being, you've been here from the beginning? 
Yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty unbelievable. I, I can remember the excitement of the league when I first went to Houston in, in 1999. I mean, we used to get like 10,000 plus fans in that arena. I mean, it helped that we were the defending WNBA champions. <laughs> and we used to travel to Washington and play against Shamiqua Holtzclaw and the Mystics and 10,000 people um, in L.A., and, um, you know, all the originating cities in the WNBA. And their excitement was, was palpable at the time. But I also remember a time when it, people started to doubt whether or not the league could last. Uh, there were many years where it was like, well, what's the longevity of this? What's the job security for the coaches in the league? And is it really going to last? And that talk kind of went out of the window, I feel like. The last decade, I, we have witnessed the best basketball being played ever on the women's side. I, I can remember watching Tamika Catchings win the WNBA championship and thinking, this might be the best basketball game I've ever watched. Like just the level of play was so high, was so competitive. And as the league has, you know, smartly stayed compact and tight, we've seen more and more phenomenal players enter and make every single team really, really good. We've seen every team have to fight tooth and nail every single night to get a, a win in this league. It's hard to even be over 500 anymore with how good the teams are in this league. So now we're at a point where in 25 years later, and my husband and I were talking about this the other day, he said, did you see the tweet where they talked about the 25th year of the NBA? They averaged 7,000 fans a game. You know, So we're still in our infancy as a league, but the trajectory of where we're going feels really good. There's talk of expansion. There's talk of there being too many good players for not enough roster spots. And so we're, we're going to make sure that we continue to set the standard uh, for fan support. We're going to continue to grow as a franchise so we can keep that conversation going, that we can expand the league, make, make sure there's more opportunities for women and coaching and playing in this league. Uh, we can continue to showcase uh, so many phenomenal women's basketball players in the United States instead of allowing so many of them to have to go play overseas. So it's pretty significant, not just because of what, how much the league has accomplished in the last 25 years, but just on the pre pre precipice of where we're heading, hopefully over the next 25. I'm wondering what your first conversations with the players have been and your interactions with them and if they have identified any off-court um, activities or priorities that are really important for them this season and beyond. Sure. Well, I just want to be clear that I'm not quite yet in the tier where I'm allowed to interact with the players, so I'm following the rules. But we have had a, a Zoom meeting um, with the team last week before they got going on their first day of training camp. And it was more of just an introductory call where I was able to introduce myself to them, talk a little bit about how excited I was to be able to join the organization, join their team, and how excited I was for, for first day of camp and, you know, so many of them, this is either their first camp ever or their first camp in Connecticut, and just talk to them a little bit about how it's going to be part of their journey forever. They were, and, and Kurt talked about, uh, you know, appreciation and gratitude for the opportunity to compete for a roster spot here. So I haven't had a chance, because there's so many veterans that are not uh, here yet, I haven't had a chance to connect or interact with the team a lot, but that certainly will be coming. As, as Kurt mentioned, this is a team-first organization, and it's going to stay that way. And hopefully they're going to look at me as somebody who's, again, been in their shoes and understands 
the work that it takes to play in this league, but also the sacrifices that so many of them have to make to be a professional women's basketball player. And we, we Kurt and I want to make sure that we're continuing to attract great free agents like Dewana Bonner to play here, but also putting them in positions where they can be more than just basketball players when they're here in the state of Connecticut. It's mulch season, so come and visit Green Valley Tree LLC. We have a variety of colors for all your landscaping needs. Buy as much or as little as you want. Pick it up or we can deliver to your door. Call Green Valley Tree LLC for all your mulch, plant health care, and tree service needs at 860-234-4041. Or find us at 577 Boston Post Road, North Windham, Connecticut. We are family-owned and fully licensed. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently, sponsored by... The Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling is a nonprofit organization which, through advocacy, prevention, and education, is here to support individuals and families who are impacted by problem gambling. Our helpline, 1-888-789-7777, is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We also have live chat and tech support through our website, www.ccpg.org. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, the state of Connecticut is making an increased effort to identify PFAS, or so-called forever chemicals, that may be building up in certain water sources in the state. According to the U.S. Center for Disease Control, PFAS exposure has been linked to high blood pressure, changes in liver enzymes, increased risk of certain types of cancer, and low infant birth rates. The Federal Environmental Protection Agency tested water systems across the country for PFAS between the years 2013 and 2015. And according to a 2016 analysis of the results, 6 million Americans were found to have levels of PFAS in their drinking water that exceeded the agency's maximum contamination level of 70 parts per trillion. Laurie Matthew, Chief of the Environmental Health and Drinking Water Branch of the Department of Public Health here in Connecticut, said that the federal agency did not find any significant contamination in Connecticut. However, she added that the federal agency only tested the largest water systems. Since then, PFAS has been found in high concentrations in a few places in Connecticut. A private well near the Eastern Connecticut Fire Training School in Wyndham was found to contain levels of the chemical that exceeded the state limit. In June of 2019, a leak of firefighting foam at Bradley International Airport in Windsor released the chemicals into the Farmington River. And in 2018, Greenwich reported high levels of PFAS in one of its private wells. In the day this week, the assistant director at Benny Dover Jackson Middle School in New London has been placed on administrative leave. Robert A. Stacey, the executive director of Talent and Human Resources for New London Public Schools, said by email that Janet Farquhar has been placed on administrative leave with pay while we investigate information brought to our attention. This is a personal matter and the district will have no further comment at this stage, he added. He did not say whether the investigation is related to a recent arrest of a Janet Farquhar. Janet Farquhar, 51, of 18 Race Rock Road in Waterford, is facing charges of operating under the influence and failure to drive right after she was pulled over by East Lyme Police. East Lyme dispatchers received two calls reporting a possibly impaired driver, with one of the callers following the vehicle and providing location information according to a police report. 
In the Norwich Bulletin this week, for Sue Starkey, Director of the Northeast District Department of Health, being able to get more people in vulnerable populations vaccinated means expanding vaccine accessibility now to the point where appointments are sometimes not needed. There are plenty of people whose lives are too busy and complicated that they can't plan far enough ahead to get a vaccine. and We want to make sure there's still a vaccine there for them when they arrive, she said. On Tuesday the 27th of April, more than 15 vaccine clinics across the state started offering the COVID-19 vaccine for individuals who walk up without an appointment. Locally, the services include Greenville Drugstore in Norwich, the Northeast District Department of Health and mass vaccination sites at both Foxwoods and Mohegan Sun Casinos. In a press release from Governor Lamont's office, the change is meant to make getting vaccinated easier along with mobile clinics. And in next week's Connecticut East this week... Moving on to higher education as a student can be stressful at the best of times. So what if you identify as LGBTQIA? What questions should you be asking of the colleges and schools you want to go to? We speak with Scott Garbini, a college consultant and life skills coach for the answers. Plus, we talk to Connecticut College about their new global COVID project, why they did it and what they learned. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week, where you can also listen to the show again on demand. And please like, follow and share on your social media platforms too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening.